Father, we praise you for the firm foundation of your word. And would you now, please, by your Holy Spirit, help us to understand these things, help us to see what they mean as they point us to Jesus and what they mean then in our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, back when I was a teenager, uh, which, you know, let's face it, was a while ago, um, for a brief period I got into the noble sport of rowing. Now I don't know if you're familiar with rowing at all, I'm not talking about the uh, boating lake in Regent's Park, I'm talking full-on sliding seat, single blade or double skull rowing. Now I was fortunate enough to be able to do this on the Thames, And uh, you might think that sounds idyllic and amazing, um, but no, when you get into rowing, we're talking early mornings, going out in all weather, rain or shine, warm, freezing cold. Uh, On the Thames, you're dealing all the time with passing river traffic, including massive boats whose wakes could easily capsize you at any moment if you don't get out of the way and negotiate them properly. And uh, all the while, you're going up and down on your seats and pushing as hard as you can with your legs and powering through the water backwards, so you can't really see where you're going, up and down where you're being screamed at, not just by the cocks, but by the coach who has a megaphone and uh, shouts at you from the motor launch nearby, addressing you by number only. Number four, you need to push harder, that's not good enough. Now obviously some people really get into this and think it's the best thing ever and they, they, they like pushing themselves, they get a great buzz, but frankly when you're 15 years old there's only so many early mornings and freezing cold outings you can take and I wasn't too unhappy to um, stop doing rowing and switch to the slightly warmer and more civilised sport of squash for a, a year or two. But the, the thing is lots of people think being a Christian is a bit like taking part in an endurance sport like rowing or or marathon running or something like that or triathlons or whatever might take your fancy you know it's great if that's your thing fantastic but it looks a little bit too much like hard work for me even if it is you know in quotes good for you and uh, more than that even Christians can sometimes end up in that place of exhaustion at all that seems to be involved in following Jesus. You know, like that point in the marathon where, you know, apparently, I've never done this, but apparently, you know, there's a point where you hit the wall and you've depleted all of your body's glucose. And the only way on is for the body to actually sort of start destroying itself in order for you to get to the finish line, those last six miles or whatever it is. And following Jesus can feel for some people sometimes it can feel exhausting you know I cannot fight the battle against sin and temptation any longer someone might say you know I just I just want to blend in I just want to stop being different I can't keep saying no to my desires and then more than that life seems to have got harder it hasn't got easier since I came to faith I thought everything might sort of come together but it didn't it got worse and I look at some of my non-christian friends and I think oh they they look, they look pretty happy, actually. They look pretty content. And here am I, and, and life in some way has not gone according to plan at all. Well, where is God in all this? And you add a pandemic into the mix, and you remove normal social contact for over a year, and a Christian might very well feel, actually, this is an endurance sport that I'm not sure I can do for very much longer. Well, come then to Joseph 
whom we join. He's just been sold into slavery by his brothers, and he's now been sold on again in Egypt, and now he's in the household of one of Pharaoh's top officials, a man called Potiphar. And it would be easy at this point for Joseph to to throw his hands up in the air and say, do you know what? I'm done. I am done. This situation is so unjust and it's so unfair that I'm just going to give up. But that is not what happens. And the key to understanding why that is and what happens is a phrase that gets repeated again and again in this chapter. Did you, did you spot this phrase that comes again and again? It says, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. It's there in verse 2 and it comes up again and again. That is what explains everything that's going on here in this chapter. And as we think about how we keep going in our Christian life and what that life is meant to look like if we're trusting in Jesus... We need to see how God was with Joseph. We need to see how God is with us. And if trusting in Jesus is still something you're considering for yourself and you're not yet doing, this is outlining for us what that life might look like if you were to put your trust in Jesus and live for him. So we see, first of all, we can put this on the screen, the first heading, God is with us in the palace. God is with us in the the palace, verses 1 to 5. Have you got that on the screen? There it is. Great. Fantastic. Thank you. That is where Joseph started. Well, we don't know if it was a palace. It was Potiphar's household. But it was certainly a nice place. And life went well for him. He prospered. And his master saw that he's, that he's prospered and he recognized it was because the Lord was with him. And so he's promoted to Potiphar's personal assistant and given responsibility for everything in in Potiphar's possession, with the exception of his food, as it notes. And the result of that was more blessing. Verse 5, not just for Joseph, but for the house of Potiphar, both in the house and in the field. Now, do you remember, behind all this story lies the promises to Abraham, starting in in, in chapter 12. What What did God promise to Abraham? I will bless you. And I will bless those who bless you. And through you, all nations will be blessed. So do you see what's happening here? Now, through Abraham's great-grandson, that promise is starting to come true with the nations, the Egyptians, the Potiphar being blessed through uh, God's man in this situation. And then, do you remember earlier in Genesis, if you've been with us, the promise to Isaac and then to Jacob. There were two significant moments in both of their lives when God said to them, I will be with you. I will be with you. Chapter 26 and chapter 31. And now, do you see, that that is happening here. Same thing. The Lord is with Joseph. But what does Joseph do as his life takes this surprising turn for the better? in Potiphar's household. He gets on with serving God and he gets on with serving his master and he gets on with doing the best job that he can. Now, of course, very often in life, it's not actually when things are going badly that people forget God and go off the rails, but actually it can be when things are going well because we forget where the blessing has come from and we start to think it might be more down to us than God. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, 
Why do you boast as though you did not? See, the Christian life, living as a Christian, living trusting in Jesus, is, first of all, about gratitude. That is where it starts, daily thanking God for what we have received. Now, Joseph is there in Potiphar's household. For us, it could be anywhere where we experience God's blessing. Maybe it's in family life, in work, in friendships, in church, in school. God is with us, so thank him. That is the first thing that we see here. But it goes on then, secondly, if we can go on to the next slide. God is with us in temptation. Next slide, if that's okay. God is with us in temptation. Sometimes life can go too well, and that's how it was for for Joseph here. He's so trustworthy that Potiphar is happy to leave him alone completely, looking after everything except his food, he says again. And more than that, he's so physically attractive, well-built and handsome, we're told, that Potiphar's wife can't leave him alone. And three times we hear in different ways of her approaching him. And her request is direct. It's more of a command. It's just two abrupt words in the original language. We could translate it, sex now. It's that kind of thing. So we saw last time Joseph's brother Judah massively abusing his power over Tamar in the context of satisfying his own sexual appetites. Well, now it's interesting. Do you, do you see, it's, in this chapter, the genders are reversed. And now it's the woman attempting to abuse her power to manipulate Joseph sexually. The Bible is clear that this is a real issue, and we know that today, don't we, in, in our world around us. Um, but it's not an exclusively male problem, nor is it an exclusively female phenomenon. This is a human problem. But Joseph refuses and again we hear of that three times using rather more words as he says that and in the end he flees verse 12 leaving his cloak in in her hands and it's very likely that the apostle paul has this episode in mind when he when he wrote about fleeing sexual immorality in in 1 corinthians chapter 6 it just says flee sexual immorality it's a very dramatic image The point is, this kind of temptation is not something to kind of dabble in. And if you look in verse 10 here in in chapter 39 in Genesis, uh, Joseph refuses not just to go to bed with her, he refuses even to be with her. As if perhaps in the face of his refusal, she's kind of downgraded her requests. just, just, Just come and lie down next to me. We don't have to do anything, but he knows the only option is to remove himself entirely. From the situation. Now, it's not a bad piece of advice in the face of temptation of any kind, is it? Don't play with fire. If you know this person is going to take you down a track that you can't resist, run away now before it's too late. And for some, the temptation to sexual immorality is in exactly this kind of way. For others, it's you know maybe pornography. People have found the only way I can deal with this is if someone else puts the password on my settings on my internet so I can't change them because I need to flee. It's the same logic that makes a recovering alcoholic says, well, say, well, it, it doesn't do just to try and drink in moderation. I need to make a completely clean break. Or someone else might say, you know, hanging around with this particular group of friends is just a really bad idea because they encourage me to do stuff that I don't really want to do, 
even if I've resolved beforehand that I don't want to do it, I find it impossible to say no in the moment. And maybe fleeing and making a clean break and saying I can't hang out with you is the right thing to do in some situations. Now, okay, so far so good. But as we've seen before, the book of Genesis is not here just to give us morality tales that say, you know, come on Christian, what you need to do is you need to try harder to resist sin like Joseph did. So off you go and try really, really hard. And if you're not trying hard enough, you need to try harder. Is that all it says? Well, what do you do then when you find that that is too hard? We need to dig a bit deeper than that to look at what's going on here. Look at the reasons that Joseph gives for resisting Potiphar's wife. He points out that Potiphar has entrusted everything to him, so this would be an abuse of trust. He says, you know, I don't want to break my trust. Okay, fair enough. He points out that she is Potiphar's wife, so this would break their marriage union. And uh, lots of people would stop there, you know, keeping the focus on the harm to others, the harm to Potiphar. I think lots of people today would make those kind of points in this situation, even if, you know, not Christians. But Joseph goes further. Do you see at the end of verse 9, he says this would be a sin not just against Potiphar, but it would be a sin against God. And this gets to the heart of what sin is. It's not merely breaking some set of impersonal rules. It's not merely about hurting other people. It's about hurting God. It's personal. Sin is about going against the way God has set up the world. The reason it isn't right for Joseph to sleep with Potiphar's wife is that God made a world in which marriage is a picture of his complete, unconditional, unbreakable commitment and love for his people. And sex is at the heart of that union, a picture of God and his people becoming one. And if Joseph sleeps with Potiphar's wife, well, he ruins that picture. Like walking into an artist's studio when they've just finished a masterpiece and they're standing there and you throw paint all over the canvas. You know, when you do that, it doesn't just ruin the painting, it's a personal attack on the artist. So do you see, in the midst of this episode of Temptation, Joseph has this sense that this, this would wreck my relationship with God. And so... That motivates him to flee. And whether we would do the same depends to some extent on who we think God is. Is he a a distant, killjoy, spoiled sport? Because if that's what we think of him, well, we won't be bothered at all about fleeing from sin. But what does Joseph know about this God? He says this would be a sin against God. What does Joseph know? Well, he's the God who's made promises to his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather and we and uh, we know him as the God who has kept those promises in Jesus Christ who has lived and died and risen from the dead so does he care about us does he want what is best for us is he with us well, of course he is. That's the beginning of the answer to that question about how we can expect to flee from any kind of temptation. Now, we'll come back to that. There's more to say. But Joseph knew God was with him in temptation. And we can know that too. But beyond that, we also then need to say to, to see, thirdly, God is with us in 
prison. If we go on to the next one, thanks. Or, you know, we might say more generally, he's with us in hard times. He was with Joseph here in, in prison. And at face value, this is a bit shocking. Because what do you expect to happen? So you just had God's person who's done the right thing. And he hasn't given in to temptation. And he's fled and he's done the, the really difficult thing that people would really struggle with. Or what do you expect? You'd think, oh, that's great. So then everything went well for Joseph. And he lived a, a happy life because he'd obeyed God. And everything worked out okay. But what happens? No, the opposite happens. And not for the first time in Genesis, there is deception involving clothing. No goat this time. If you remember, there's always been a goat before, but this, now it's just clothing. This Hebrew came in to make sport of me, but I screamed for help and he escaped, but he left his cloak behind. And Potiphar is not impressed by what he hears. Um, Possibly he has an inkling that Mrs. Potiphar might not be telling the whole truth because he opts for prison over the more obvious death penalty for a slave in this kind of situation. But still he acts. And Joseph, who has um, acted with total integrity throughout the whole situation, what happens to him? He ends up in prison. And sometimes this is what happens when you do the right thing. Life gets seemingly worse and not better. You know, the person who blows the whistle on something dodgy at work, well, they get passed over for promotion. The person who says no to an unsuitable relationship ends up not in the marriage that they were hoping for. The student who who passes on the opportunity to cheat misses the top mark. These, these, These things don't always happen by any means, but sometimes they do. And even to God's person, doing exactly what God's person is supposed to be doing. Now, if that happens, what does it mean? Does it mean God has abandoned us? Well, actually, look at Joseph. In Joseph's case, it meant the opposite. Do you see that in verse 21? The Lord was with him still. And just as he showed kindness to him in the palace, as it were, now he shows kindness to him in the prison. And just as he was in charge of everything in the, in the palace, now he's in charge of everything in the prison. And the Lord gives him success in everything he does, and we'll have to come back next time to see what happens next. But do you see the point? See, resisting su- temptation superficially made life worse for Joseph. You know, why didn't he just sleep with her? No one would have known. <clears throat> he could have kept his cushy jo- job. No one would have been the wiser. But he knows that's not the right thing to do. But the point is, you see, life is not about our personal comfort, is it? But it's about what God is doing. He's in control. So what does that mean then? Do we just then resign ourselves to fate? You know, okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. No, it's not whatever will be, will be. It's that God's plan will be. And he says that what's he doing in the world? Well, he's making us more like Jesus in every circumstance, whether in the palace or in the prison. And he will use us to fulfill his promise to reach the world and as we've seen before with Joseph this setback is one more step to the fulfillment of the dreams that started this whole process off but one day his family will bow down to him as their savior and rescuer and as we reflect on this then we need to remember what we heard in the second reading as well the word spoken to another 
Joseph, that the woman to whom he was betrothed was pregnant with a child who would be called Emmanuel, which means, what does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. God is with us. Now, if we return to that image of rowing, the the reason many people give up, give up being Christians, is that they think they cannot possibly keep going when they find themselves finally in the prison, in hard times, for whatever reason. But often we've got the wrong idea about where Jesus fits in in that image, you know, if you, if, with the rowing image. You know, we might imagine that the problem was that the boat was sinking and it was full of heavy weights, making it impossible to row. But then you know, we think, okay, what it means to be a Christian is that Jesus has come along And he's kind of taken the burden of all those weights in the boat that were making it difficult to row. And he's taken them. And he's he's taken them on himself on the cross. And he's fixed the holes in the boat. And then what does he Well, he just leaves us. He says, okay, I've done that. Off you go. And you're supposed to then get on with rowing or whatever, you know, in that sense. You're supposed to get on with living the Christian life. But you're just by yourself again. He's taken the burden away. But off you go by yourself in your own strength. Sometimes we think that's, and then sometimes perhaps along with that we might think, well, you know, Jesus is there, but he's kind of, he's drawn alongside us in his motor launch with a megaphone and he's shouting motivational instructions. You know, come on, try harder, you can do this. And we're thinking, well, but I, I can't, I can't do this. This is the whole point. I, I, I really can't. Or if we, if we develop it a bit further, we might think, okay, well, if it's, if it's not quite that, then what's he do? Well, he gets into the boat as my teammate, as the co-pilot. And he kind of rows along with me, but we know how it works with rowing. Everybody has to row. And if you don't row as well, if you don't sort of do your best, well, it's not really going to work. But we won't properly understand how we're supposed to keep trusting him and keep going until we realize that Emmanuel, God with us, means not that just that he's in the boat with us, but that he's taken over the boat. And we look at Joseph and we think, well, you know, that's great, but I, I just can't, I can't be that faithful. But Joseph is what we call a type of Christ. And the overall pattern of his life is not there just to give us a good example of how to live. It's there to point us to Jesus. And you can see that in the the overall shape of his life, which is Jesus-shaped, with suffering followed by glory, cross-shaped. But it's also there in the details of his life as well. And the New Testament implicitly picks up on some of those details, which reassures us it's right to see Joseph in this kind of way as pointing us forward, not just as a a great example, but to point us forward to what Jesus has done. This is the life in the end that Jesus lived. Trusting God in the good times, trusting God in temptation. Yes, Jesus certainly did that, didn't he? He was tempted just as we are, yet was without sin. And then trusting God in suffering. This is what Jesus did. And so when we trust in Jesus, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin and our failure and our our inability to be quite as good as Joseph was here lots of times. What he sees when we're trusting in Jesus is he sees Jesus' perfect 
faithfulness on our behalf. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, we've got that on the screen, Paul explains what it means for Jesus to be God with us. And Paul's way of putting it is like this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Jesus Christ lives in me. So do you see, in the palace, in the good times, God is with me because Jesus Christ lives in me. In temptation, when we're faced with sin, God is with me because Jesus Christ lives in me. So I I need not say it's inevitable that I will sin. No, because that's what I like. I'm I'm just a sinner. I always give in eventually, so I might as well give in now. We so often think, no, no, that's that's not my identity now. It's not your identity if you're trusting in Jesus. It's not who we are. I no longer live, but Jesus Christ lives in me. And then Paul goes on, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So moment by moment then, faced with temptation, just as Joseph was here, we say, Lord, this is not my identity now. Yes, of course, in my own strength, I haven't got a hope. But this is not who I am now. I am not a sinner who gives in to this sin that I'm being tempted with now. I have died and Jesus Christ lives in me. These are not my hands and feet for serving me and doing my will. They are Jesus' hands and feet to serve him and do his will. And then after that, we can know. In the prison, when life is tough, and even if that results from doing the right thing and from you know, doing exactly what we should have done and resisting sin and we still end up in hard times, what can we know? We can know God is with us because Jesus Christ lives in us. He is working in all things for good. That is the message of the life of Joseph as we keep seeing. He's working in all things for good to make us more like his son, to bring the world around us to know him too. So if you're not yet trusting in him, come to him and trust him and know that he then lives in us so that we do what we cannot do by ourselves. And if we are trusting in him, then let's Keep on day by day, knowing that this is not my life, it's his. I have died, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, Jesus Christ lives in me. So I get then to trust him and live for him day by day. Let me lead us in prayer now. Father God, we marvel at the faithfulness of Joseph who knew that you were with him in the good times, in temptation and in the bad times. 
We praise you for how that points us to Jesus. Who did that supremely and without sin at any moment. And so as we struggle, whether in the good times or the bad times, or in the face of temptation to sin, as we struggle, we thank you that Jesus Christ lives in us if we're trusting in him, that he has lived the perfect life. And so we want to live moment by moment trusting, live by faith in this Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.